I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit RG help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. After an awesome day in Boston, the Red Sox had a really, really impressive win and took two of three from the Milwaukee Brewers, who are the second best team in Major League Baseball right now behind the Rays, who just don't lose at all. You had the Bruins take a commanding 3-1 series lead on the Panthers, and of course, we're recording right after the Celtics knocked off the Hawks to take their 3-1 series lead, so it was an awesome day. We're going to chat with Drew Bledsoe in just a little bit as well. We had a conversation with Drew about his career. It was a ton of fun, the 0-1 AFC Championship when he filled in for Tom. What was it like, the whole experience going through that quarterback debate, if you will, with Brady? And he had some interesting things on the relationship between Bill and Robert Kraft going forward, and also whether or not he believes in Mac Jones. So we'll do all that with Drew Bloodsoe in just a little bit. But I really feel like we've had these days in Boston. We've been spoiled over the past 20 years or so. But the last time I can remember a day like this where you just had great wins all over the place was it was October 13th of 2013 when it was game two of the ALCS. And if you remember back to that day, the Red Sox entered that game down one to nothing against the Tigers. And just to remind you, that Tigers team was a wagon. We're talking about Miguel Cabrera, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer. That team was incredibly loaded. And what happens? The Red Sox go down in this game five to one. And Max Scherzer, he had 13 strikeouts through the first six innings, not to mention the fact he took a no hitter into the sixth inning, or I should say at 13 strikeouts in the game. But nonetheless, he took a no-hitter into the sixth inning. The Red Sox are down 5-1. It looks like the series is over, and Detroit's going to win 
the ALCS, if you lose that game, you go down 0-2, it's over, right? You're not winning the next four out of five against a team like that. And what happens? David Ortiz, the grand slam, ties it up at five. And Torrey Hunter goes over the wall. And then the rest is history. The Red Sox win that game. They win the series. And then on that same day, remember, the Patriots are playing the New Orleans Saints. And they're down 27-23 with 113 left in the game. And Tom Brady takes them down the field he eventually hits Tompkins in the back of the end zone, but it wasn't like he was at the two-yard line. It was at the 17. It was a walk-off touchdown for Tom Brady and the Patriots. So you had the Ortiz Grand Slam and that epic comeback from the Patriots on the same day. And that's sort of how I felt today with the win for the Bruins, the win for the Red Sox, and of course, the big win for the Celtics that we just watched. It was just really, really interesting to see. And let's start with the Celtics. We will get into the Bruins and the Red Sox as well. But just in terms of the Celtics, first thing I got to say is, I'm glad they're not going to go back to Atlanta because they're winning game five on Tuesday night because that place is annoying. The PA announcer is very annoying. That Hawk sound is very annoying. Just get out of that gym. Never go back there this year. Right. So I'm happy about that. But I did feel like there was a lot of impressive performances, but I'm really impressed with Joe Missoula, right, because he challenged the team. And I know I've been hard on Missoula at times this season, but I thought he really challenged the team over the past couple of days. He kept challenging them in terms of the rebounding. And the reason he did that was in that game on Friday, right? The second chance points were so bad. The Hawks had 23 second chance points in that game. And if you look at it in terms of the leader in the NBA this season, that was the Rockets at 16.7. The Hawks had 23 in that game three. And the Celtics have been one of the best rebounding teams in a lot of categories. They're the best defensive rebounding team in the NBA. And if you look at it through the first three games of the series, Jason Tatum was your leader in defensive rebounders, uh, rebounds rather at 29. Horford was second at 15. Okay, he had eight defensive rebounds tonight. Robert Williams had 13 in the first three games. He had 12 defensive rebounds tonight. And if you look at what happened in that game, the Celtics were out-rebounded 48-29 to in game three. We alluded to that on Friday. They come back today. They win the rebounding battle 49-42 to overall and 32-20 to in the first half. And that was the big thing, right? You could clearly tell that they were flying to go get rebounds. There was an emphasis on that. And here's the thing I liked about Missoula, what he did. He went to the double big lineup, right? And if you look at it in terms of the double big lineup this year, the Celtics with the double big lineup, their rebounding percentage is 56.8%. The best team in the league is the Rockets at 53. So with the two bigs, Al and Rob, they're at 56.8. If you look at the defensive rebounding, the Celtics are already the best defensive rebounding team at the NBA, even though they didn't look it on Friday. At 74.6%, they're at 80.2% with Rob and with Al Horford on the court. And that was the move tonight from Joe Missoula. And I give him credit because, remember, I was giving Quinn Snyder credit for some of the moves he made in Game 3 where he said, okay, let's get into our actions quicker with Trey Young. Let's set the ball screens higher so he can get a running start. And remember, they made that whole move where they put Capella on smart to try to take away some of the driving lanes from the Celtics so he could roam more as a defender rather than be glued to Al Horford. So we have to give Joe Missoula credit for this. This is a nice move to go back to the double, double big lineup. So this is what Rob said that Joe Missoula told him prior to game four in between the games. Yeah, get a motherfucking rebound. Honestly, just a team lack of effort. Can't really blame it on anything. This is what Rob was saying. Rebounding is all effort, physicality, 50-50 balls, You know, just look at a step up. I feel like they're putting an emphasis on physicality, which they've been beating us up the whole series. If you ask me, it's something we've been putting an emphasis on. So what Joe Mazzulla did in between these games is he completely challenged the manhood 
of this Celtics team? How do you get out-rebounded by this Atlanta Hawks team, right? That's the message that was clearly sent by Joe Mazzulla. And he actually, he didn't just, he did this in two ways, right? First of all, he did something schematically by going back to the two-big lineup. In fact, they closed that way until the very end of the game in garbage time when they took Rob out. So they closed with the two-big lineup. So he did something schematically, but he also challenged his team, which tells you that the message that he was sending got through to the guys, especially with the way that Robert Williams played. I did think it was interesting, though, Joe Mazzulla, during that interview between the first and the second quarter, I was watching on TNT. So it was Jared Greenberg of TNT. This was like Greg Popovich-esque. Like, this is the way that he was talking to Greenberg. So Greenberg asked him, how would you compare the physicality from Friday night to tonight? Much better. That's all he says. Much better. What did you want to see from that double big lineup with Robert Williams and Al Horford? Rebound the ball every time. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just like, it's unbelievable. Like the personality is very like Greg Popovich. Like he's short with the media, all that different type of stuff. I didn't think it was funny during the interview, but I do feel like one thing that you can look at is I almost feel like the loss actually works out well for the Celtics, right? Because, and look, obviously you'd like to sweep and you wouldn't like to learn this way, but I do feel like Atlanta in this game on tonight, they were ready. Like they were game for this one, right? Like Atlanta in some ways played well in this game, but they were up for the challenge and the Celtics gave them confidence by letting them win that game three. I know, look, give Atlanta credit. They won the game, but the Celtics played so poorly defensively that they had a large reason as to why Atlanta won that game. And so that was a good quality playoff win. Like nothing, it wasn't perfect or anything along those lines, but that is a quality playoff win for an Atlanta team that came into tonight's game with a ton of confidence that thought, hey, we can make a series out of this thing. And the Celtics just basically took that out of the picture now when you go up three to one in a best of seven series. I mean, this thing is over. So I do feel like now the Celtics going forward, they're not going to have lapses like this defensively. They're not going to have lapses like this in terms of the rebounding. I'm not saying they're going to win the rest of their games in the postseason. I'm just saying maybe it was good to sort of have this experience early on. Now, just looking at the two big lineup, because Al in this game was great. He had 11 rebounds, a team best plus 17. The shooting still spooks the Atlanta Hawks. They are scared of Al Horford shooting, so it helps when it comes to that. But what I really thought stuck out to me was this is an awesome Rob game. 14 points, as we mentioned, the 15 rebounds, three assists, two steals, two blocks. He was the game changer. He was the game wrecker that we've seen him be throughout the season when he has his big moments, right? When he has his big moments, he's noticeable. And the thing that jumped out to me, or didn't jump out to me, I should say, on Friday, is he was like invisible. Like you didn't feel Robert Williams in the game. Like you should always feel his impact. And we certainly did in this game tonight. So right away, he gets two free throws off a Brogdon drive, makes them both. Then he gets an and one when he's sitting there in the dunker spot. So it's just having that level of a guy that can go up and get you a lob, play in the dunker spot. It gives the drivers an outlet, right? Rather than just having to kick it out for a three, you have that guy right there where the defense, if you get past your defender, right? If Brogdon gets by Murray or Brogdon gets by Trey or Tatum gets by Trey or Jalen gets by Murray, whoever it is, Hunter, you have to make a decision. Hey, am I coming up to help on Jalen or Jason Tatum or Brogdon? Or am I staying glued to Rob? Because if I don't stay glued to Rob, then they're throwing a lob. So I just think he helps just being in that dunker spot. And then overall, I thought hey, you had an and one where he kept the possession alive that eventually led to an and one. And then if <laughs> he absolutely stoned Collins, where you got John Collins on a switch. Collins tries to like ISO him and drive him. He just stones him and gets the rebound. And then he rolled after another pick and roll with Brogdon, got to the free throw line. The only unfortunate part for Rob, and I think part of it was he's just playing so hard, he picked up his fifth foul with 11 minutes left, so he would have played even more time. But 
He then had a nice help block on Collins when Derek White was on him and he got into the post. Rob timed it perfectly where he's actually off the ground before Collins even released a shot. He was able to hang there and block it. And it was big because at that particular point in time, it's 108-98. And then he got a tip rebound over Capella when the score is 108-100 to to make sure that they didn't get the ball back. It was just a really nice play by Rob to get up there with Capella and hit it to Malcolm Brogdon. And then he had a nice play late in the game. Dunker spot. Jalen with the drive makes it 111 to 104. So I just thought overall, and oh, really late when it's 118-109, he gets an offensive rebound on a Jalen miss. And then he kicks it out to Jason Tatum. He cuts. He gets the ball back from Tatum. And then he finds Jalen for that huge dunk to make it 121-109. So, and then he had a steal on Capella after Capella had picked Jalen Brown. Remember that? And then Jalen gets another dunk to make it 123-113. So I just thought, Rob... He made huge plays down the stretch of this game, and you could tell he was totally different from an energy perspective. So I give Joe Mazzulla a ton of credit going back to the two big lineup. I give Rob a ton of credit for accepting the challenge and rebounding and being a force that we know he can be. The one question I'd have about Mazzulla is why no Grant again? That, that was the one thing that stuck out to me in terms of the rotation. Hauser hit 1-3 in this game, so he has six points in 45 minutes. Grant, in 14 minutes, or in 18 minutes the other night, had 14 points, he hit four threes. And he's a way better defender than Hauser. So I don't want to be critical of Missoula because I thought it was great to go back to the double big lineup, but I have no idea why Grant is not playing and Sam Hauser is. And the other thing that I would say about this in terms of just the Missoula thing, it almost feels like, to me, this lineup, this two big lineup, like, you don't want to play it all the time because it's not always great for your offense to have the two bigs out there. Obviously, it's great to close that way because you have the lead. But it almost feels like the Warriors, when they have that death lineup where Draymond Green goes to the five. Now, the reason they do that, Draymond obviously is great. He can guard anybody, but it also helps your offense having a guy essentially playing center that can essentially play point guard. Well, with the Celtics, it's like the opposite, right? This is your defensive lineup. This is the lineup that you know you can go to when you need stops. So I do think it's nice to have that sort of in your back pocket. And I would compare it to that Warriors thing just because... It's a wrinkle that I don't think a lot of other teams in the league, quite frankly, have. Maybe the Cavaliers, but their defense has not been particularly great against the New York Knicks. But another thing I would say is awesome Jalen game. Awesome Jalen game. 31 points, 12 of 22 from the floor. I like the fact that he only took four three-pointers. 18 points in the paint, 13 attempts in the restricted area. This was just, hey, I'm getting downhill and you're not stopping me from getting there. And if you look at it, post-All-Star break, he averaged 15.5 points per game in the paint. That was fourth behind Giannis, Shea, and Jokic. Tonight, he had 18. Giannis was the only guy that was north of 18 points per game in the paint post-All-Star break. And those attempts in the restricted area, as I mentioned, the 13 tonight, and post-All-Star break, Jalen was at 8.2, which was third behind Giannis and Sabonis. Giannis was first at 10.4. Tonight, Jalen was at 13. So this, to me, it almost reminded me of... uh, Dwayne Wade performance where Dwayne Wade as a guard, he would get into this mentality where it's like, you cannot stop me from getting to the rim. And that's what I saw from Jalen tonight. It actually happened like when he took the mask off, right? I thought that was funny. He took the mask off and he took that wrap off. And after that, he just took off. He had a pull up three to make it 51-37. Then he had a hard drive right to the basket, 53-40. Hard drive left on Murray to make it 72-63. Murray, I don't know what he's doing. He he keeps trying to gamble on Jalen, like let Jalen go by him and try to tap the ball from behind. But Either way, it didn't work. He had a nice uh, transition Euro step to the left side to make it 78-67. In semi-transition, he gets to the line, and this is where I kind of got worried. Now, he hit one of the two free throws to make it 79-69 because at that point, he started grabbing the hand. Obviously, the hand's not right. We know that, but it was bothering him then. Luckily, he just, he finished the game strong. I mean, he drove on 
Bay to make it 84-74. And then he had a hard drive on, on Okongwu, which I thought was impressive for an and one to make it 89-80, where Okongwu tried to match him with the verticality. Jalen just went through him and was still able to finish that. Then he had a three on Okongwu, and the reason he hit that three, he made it 95-87. The reason he had that three available and he had all that space, which I thought it was a good three because Okongwu was laying way back because he was scared of Jalen going by him because he had already done it a bunch of times in the game. So I thought that was a good three for Jalen to take. And then he had that drive in a Kongwu where he missed the original shot, but then he had that second jump where he got his own offensive rebound and put it back in. And that was just sort of a reminder of Jalen's in like the top 1% of athletes in the NBA. That second jump is just so, so explosive. Then later on in the game, drove by Murray, where I thought they kept going to that Tatum, Derek White, like sort of Tatum setting the screen for Derek White to get Tranum. And I'm like, get Jalen some touches. Like Jalen's unstoppable right now. And right when he got it, he drove by Murray, laid it off to Rob to make it 111-104. And then the next possession, he drove past Trey, throws up a lob to Rob to make it 113-106. And then late in the game, Murray tried to take him. And I thought Jalen was really good in terms of his on-ball defense in this game. Jalen's always been a good on-ball defender. When he doesn't have great defensive games, it's more so his off-ball stuff. But he completely stoned Murray, took the ball away from the Celtics, go the other way. And of course, he hit the corner three at the end of the game to make it 121-109. And Entering this game, Jalen had 13 turnovers in the first three games of the series, cut that down tonight to just two, had three assists, so finally had a positive assist-to-turnover ratio. But I thought all in all, that was just, hey, I'm bigger, I'm faster, I'm stronger than you, I'm going to get downhill, I'm going to get to my spots, and that's the Jalen you love to see, right? That was just a dominant physical performance from Jalen Brown. As for Tatum, he didn't shoot the ball well from deep, just four of 13, but I thought he was really good defensively, right? He had the three blocks. I thought he was a monster in this game. And he got to the free throw line 12 times, which I love, especially if your three's not falling. And the only player this year over 12 free throw attempts per game is Giannis. Tatum took 12 tonight. So that just tells you that the defense couldn't stop him, right? He was getting to his spots. And like I mentioned with Jalen, I thought the physicality of Jason Tatum was overwhelming in this game. He was a plus 13. We know all season long, he's been a plus minus monster. 31-7, four and three blocks, okay? And he made a priority really quick in this game to get downhill. Got downhill, gets to the line to make it 3-2. to two. He spun through Hunter to get to the basket, made it 16-11. Had a nice pass to Derek White for a wide open three to make it 19-11. Then he got to the free throw line for two free throws on a hard drive. Drove right by Sadiq Bey. Anytime Sadiq Bey is on Jalen or Tatum, if you notice, they're just going right by this guy. Made it 31-18 there. He had that great play on Capella. How about the verticality where... He goes up with Capella, gets the block. It's 53-47 at that time. Like, it's a close game. He just goes up with Capella, who's a seven-footer, and Tatum's able to send it back. He then hit a fadeaway over Hunter, which was just like, just a pretty shot from Tatum. And then Smart got a hard drive off a of Tatum screen where he got an easy layup to make it 60-51 to because Tatum grabbed Trey. Like, it's clearly a foul on Jason Tatum. It's just a heady play where he sees, okay, Smart's going to have an advantage here, so he just grabs him. It's it's definitely a foul on Tatum, but I like that play. He had a block on Trey that was just massive, and then it led to a Jalen dunk on the other end. That was just, Trey tried to challenge him, and Tatum's like, yeah, I'm not having any of that. And then he got Murray on a massive block as well, where he just played like a bully in this game. That's what stuck out to me. Like, Tatum looked like the biggest, strongest guy out there. In semi-transition, he got right to the basket on Trey Young, and Trey ended up picking up that flagrant on that play, where that was kind of dangerous by Trey Young. He just like, he, he's a 
the terminology is not defenseless. He's like a vulnerable player at that particular point in time when he's airborne. He blocked Capella after an offensive rebound. Like, he got Capella twice in this game. And then he had to step back three to make it 98-91. His shot wasn't going, but this is sort of like, he's a gamer. Like, he's going to hit big shots. I always feel like Tatum's going to hit big shots. He then, right after that, hit the catch and shoot three to make it 106-98. So I just thought overall, and then how about the broken play? He hit the logo three to make it 118-106. That was awesome. And then he really put the exclamation mark on the night with that dunk on Capella to make it 125-116, where, I mean... I would feel bad for Capella after this game because Tatum, I mean, that was an emasculating performance. I mean, Tatum just completely embarrassed that guy. So I thought really good Jalen game, really good Tatum game, even though the numbers don't look great in terms of the three-point shooting. Unbelievable Rob game, really good game for the coach as well. And then Brogdon was really good in this game, right? I mean, relentless driving. I don't believe you win this game without what Brogdon did early on. He has 14 on 6 of 10 shooting, 4 assists as well. Right when he gets into the game, an unbelievable pass, right, where he's on the right wing. He throws the ball all the way to the left corner for a wide open three for Hauser, who nails it. And then he had a pull-up three after that. I don't know why the defense goes under there. They go under the screen. He makes a 27-18. Like, Malcolm Brogdon this year was 60 of 134 on pull-up threes, 44.8%, one of the best guys in the league. Yet the Hawks go under it, so he just nails a three. And then he drove off a screen, found Rob for a layup. Rob was fouled. He got to the free throw line, hit both of those. Then when Jalen Johnson, this is another guy that's Celtics target. Jalen Johnson's on him, goes right by him, wrong foot, lefty layup, gets to the cup later on, makes it 35-32. And then he gets a switch on a Kongwu, a guy that the Celtics are targeting. They're Like everybody in this team, they target. Like they're not scared of anybody. He goes right by him, another wrong footed lefty layup. Murray tried to close out on him. He goes right by him, makes it 86-78. Then he finds Rob on a roll to get him to the free throw line. Rob bit one of two. He then hits a pull-up two, gets around a screen, made it 102-96. Hard drive left to get to the basket and get to the free throw line. Then he had a nice kick to Tatum. I mentioned that catch and shoot three from Tatum. But all in all, I thought Brogdon did a really good job putting pressure on the defense and realizing whether it's Jalen Johnson, whether it's Okongwu, whether it's Murray, any of these guys he can get by, and that's his role on this team. Hey, you get in the game. You should be driving. You need to put pressure on the defense. Not to say that he doesn't ordinarily do that, but you could see that was clearly his priority in this game, so I thought he was outstanding. The starting backcourt was really good, too. White and Smart, they combined to go 15 of 28, 53.6%, 7 of 17 from 3, 41.2%. So, yeah, they're not going to match DeJounte Murray and Trey Young with the scoring, but the efficiency they can, they shoot 53.6%. And those two guys shoot 43.5% combined. White was really good early in this game. He took the charge on Collins, hit a wide open three to make it 19 to 11. And one of the most impressive plays I thought he had in this game is when Okongwu, he changed his shot, right? (laughs) Because of his ability to block shots. At that point in time, Okongwu was going up for a shot at the rim and White contested. He has to change his shot. He misses a layup because a little guard challenged him. And smart, I thought the most smart play in this game tonight was... The isolation on Bogdanovich, right, where at the end of the quarter, Jalen Brown, right, this guy that Jalen is unstoppable in this game, he's coming up with his defender to set a screen for Marcus Smart. Smart waves him off, and then he goes right by Bogdanovich, another guy the Celtics target, and he dunks it. So I thought Smart was really good. He had a three-pointer at the end of the shot clock at 1.2, made it 65-53, even though the four-point play got taken away. He still was able to hit a three. So I thought it was a really good Smart game as well. I thought... Really, Derek White was good. I don't really, I'm not really critical of anybody's performance in this game. I thought everybody was really good. I mean, my only question is the Grant Williams component to this, but impressive performance by 
Missoula. Like, this is one of the things we're wondering about with him and his first go around as a postseason coach. Was he going to be able to make adjustments? That's the major takeaway I have from this game outside of like the physicality of Jalen and Jason Tatum and how well Rob played. But I attribute some of the output of Rob to Joe Missoula challenging in the past couple of days. And I really like the fact that he went back to the two big lineups. So this is a if you were worried about Joe Missoula in the postseason, I'm not saying you should not be worried at all. But if you were worried about him making adjustments, he made a massive one tonight. They were not playing the two big lineup. They went back to it tonight. Okay, one other thing Celtics wise. So the Sixers have ended that series. Doc Rivers said there's a 50% chance that Joel Embiid's going to be ready for this, the second, the start of the second series, I should say. And this on Tuesday night, which I believe the Celtics will, but Embiid's vulnerable right now. This is really like turning up really good for the Celtics. And not to say like you're hoping for injuries, but the Bucs are banged up. Giannis didn't play again. So at the very least, they're going to have to play six games in that series because they lost on Saturday. They're down two to one. Embiid's banged up. So if he comes back, I mean, Doc was talking about the MRI. It wasn't good. He has swelling in the back of the knee. So if he comes back, we don't even know what percentage he's going to be like. He's definitely not going to be 100 percent when he comes back. And the other component to this is and I know Harden put up some numbers, but he was from my perspective, he's not even close to the same guy right now. You look at Harden in the restricted area. He was four of 17, four of 17 in the restricted area, that little circle in that series against Miami. That's 23.5 percent. That's horrible. He was three of 13 from the short mid range. So, you know, floaters, that type of stuff. He has no burst. He cannot get to the basket on his drives. He had 53 drives in the four games they played. He was six of 26, 23.1%. So especially now with a Embiid that's banged up, Harden looks really vulnerable right now. He's not the same athlete. He doesn't have that same burst whatsoever. I feel really good about this Philadelphia matchup. So it does feel like despite the ugly loss the Celtics had on Friday, we thought that they'd probably win this series in five to begin with, right? It's difficult to sweep unless you play the Brooklyn Nets last year and they have Kyrie and he's just going to quit. But all in all, you got to feel really good about where the Celtics are at. Like everything's sort of turning up Celtics here as we get ready to go on this playoff run. After the win tonight, you're up 3-1. You're in complete control. You close it out Tuesday. You get ready for a Philly team that's clearly not healthy right now. All right, a lot more to get into. We will get into the Bs in a little bit. We'll get into the Sox. But Drew Bloodsoe is going to join us next. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, a four-time Pro Bowler, led the NFL in passing yards in 1994, part of the Pats' all-1990s team, and a Patriots Hall of Famer. It is Drew Bloodsoe. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time, man. How are you? For sure, man. You caught me on a good day. Just getting ready to uh, head down to uh, Denver for Parents Weekend at uh, DU with my son. So, um, caught me before a travel day. Oh, wow, that's awesome. So, hey, before we get into some football... I remember watching a story about you a couple years back about how you were getting into wine. So tell us about Blood So Wine Estates and Double Back and the work you've been doing. Yeah, you know it's been uh, it's been a it's been a good ride, man. It's been uh, it, man. It turns out it's been a long time now. I've actually been in uh, the wine business longer than I was in the NFL now, which seems just crazy. Wow. Uh, but yeah, we my, we launched the wine business in 2007, right after I retired. And, 
started out with one wine, about sixteen hundred, about six hundred cases, um, and since then it's grown into three wineries and lots of vineyard properties and sixty employees and uh, all of this. So it's become. Uh, it started out as just kind of a fun little uh, side business, and uh, now it's become a real business, and it's uh, it's been great to watch it grow. That's unbelievable. So I got to ask, when you come back to New England for games, does Robert make sure, Robert Kraft make sure that you bring wine for him or what? I always make sure that the uh, that the uh, uh, the suite is well stocked with the appropriate wine. So, <laughs> hey, uh, so I just noticed something that's really funny and whether this stays in your podcast or not. Um, my, uh, screen name is up as Gary, which, <laughs> which <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the funny thing is I was just on this, uh, this other zoom and I got to figure out how to change this thing. I'll fix, I'll fix it later. But, uh, they wanted it to be a surprise that I was coming on. So they're like, all right, pick, uh, pick a ghost name and turn your camera <laughs> off. So maybe I'll just keep it. I'll just be Gary from now on. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Our producer, Jamie was just saying, Hey, I see Gary's here. I think it must be Drew. So, hey, it works out. We're an audio platform anyway, Drew. So I appreciate oh, okay, it. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, hey, let's go to 93. It's crazy. Like the 30 year anniversary of you being the number one pick. So you're coming out of Washington State. The Patriots have the number one pick. Number two is Seattle and you're from Washington State. Right. So what was your reaction to getting picked by the Patriots? And when did you know you were going to go to New England? You know, well, I'll answer both questions, but, you know, first off, you know, I kind of, at the time I wanted, I kind of wanted to stay close to home, you know, I mean, it's, it's comfortable and know people, you know, mom could come over and do my laundry and, um, you know, <laughs> I, um, but, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, man, what a blessing I got drafted by the, by the, by the, uh, Pats, you know, I got to, uh, got to experience, you know, maybe the greatest sports town in America, um, and unless you ask anybody that's not in New England, <laughs> and then they love to hate on the hate on all things New England, but uh, just an amazing uh, sports town, amazing culture, and in, in, in and around that area. Uh, plus, I also had the benefit of being three thousand miles away from from home uh, while I was playing. So you know, and this is back like pre-internet. That's how friggin' old I am. Uh, you know, so if anybody saw, you know, updates on what was going on, you know, it was on the evening news or on ESPN, there were not, you know, 10 million outlets where everybody had a voice. And so when I came home, I could just kind of come home and chill. Uh, now it's a much smaller world with everybody having a voice. Uh, but as far as when I knew I was going to be drafted, Parcells would not tell anybody what, what was in, in, in his mind. Um, we thought, Pretty sure I was going to be number one, but we didn't really know until Paul Tagliabue announced the pick was when we actually finally knew for sure. All right. So speaking of Parcells, you're 21 coming out of college and we know the reputation of Parcells from his days with the Giants, right? Like he's a hard ass. He's a really tough coach. What were your first impressions of getting to training camp or whatever it was at that point, OTAs and the first time you were playing for Parcells? What was that experience like? You know, it's probably about exactly what you would expect. It sucked, you know, <laughs> especially especially as a rookie. Um, you know, he was he was, you know, in my in my face all the time. You know, I'd drop back to to pass and in practice and he'd be standing next to me going, throw it, throw it, throw it. You know, and you're trying to play the game and he's yelling at you and barking at you the whole time. But you know, the 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 benefit of, of that all that was that Sundays, uh, man, I always look forward to Sundays for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons was he always had to be at least 35 yards away from me. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it was much more relaxing on Sundays than it was in practice, which maybe that was part of the method to his madness was to, 
make practice so uncomfortable that the games are easy. All right, so flip forward to 1994, and we think of Parcells, we think of a defense and a running game, right? And you guys start off the season, you're three and six. You're down, what, 20 to three to the Minnesota Vikings at halftime. So he had no choice, right? He had to unleash you, let you pass the ball. You still have the record for completions in a game 45 tied with Jared Goff in that game. And you still have the record for most attempts, 70 in a game. So do you remember back to that game? Like in the moment, did you realize like I'm throwing it a lot, but clearly you didn't think you were throwing it 70 times. How did you feel after that game? You know, I was just, I was so fired up, um, mostly because I got to call my own plays, you know, and, and the whole second half, I was, I was just rolling. Um, and, um, you know, the benefit was that the Vikings at that time had a really young secondary, so they couldn't play a lot of coverages. So it made it pretty simple. Um, and, um, we just started going up and down the field and our defense created a couple turnovers. Next thing you know, um, you know, we're in overtime and then, Kevin Turner makes a great catch in the corner of the end zone and, and we win the game, you know? So I was super fired up. Um, it was really fun and, and honestly would love to have played a whole big chunk of my career in that tempo and in that style. It would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. Especially like the way that the game's played now where defensive backs can't do much to receivers. I mean, I'm cer- certainly <laughs> think you would like that, but that year you throw for what? 4,555 yards. You beat out Dan Marino for the passing title. The four guys directly behind you, Marino, Warren Moon, who, I mean, that guy, what an arm that he had, and then Steve Young and Brett Favre. You're 22 at this point in 1994. How magical of a season was that? Because not only did you guys win that Vikings game, you won seven in a row to get into the postseason. You guys had started three and six, so it was not a great start to the season. What was that year like? Once we got rolling, man, it, um, you know, the, you know, people like to talk about momentum, and I don't really... I'm not sure momentum is the right word, but there was a confidence around our team that uh, we started to really believe that we could win, you know, uh, in in any situation. Uh, and when you start to have that confidence and expectation as a team, uh, it be it can become you know self fulfilling. And we really had it rolling, and and uh, it was it was a ton of fun, um, you know, being a part of a team that was rolling like that. It was it it uh, it really was uh, an exciting time. Plus, we were all young, man. I was I was 22, uh, but the rest of the team was really young, and so there was just kind of this uh, kind of almost college feel to what we were doing um, because we were just a bunch. Of, we felt like we were just a bunch of kids, and it was us against the world, and we were the perennial underdogs and hadn't been very good for a long time. So uh, it was just really, really fun. By the way, did you like those uniforms? Because like we talk about now, like they finally brought back the Pat to Patriot this year for the Patriots. Did you like those nineties, like the Royal blue uniforms? I did, man. I think my favorite uniforms were 1994 and we only had those one year. And that's when we had, we had the the numbers on the shoulders. Uh, I just thought those kind of looked cool. It was, looked kind of old school. Um, you know, I think those were my favorite unis. And then we uh, switched and put the uh, flying Elvis on the shoulders. And, and um, I think we had like some almost like some soccer stripes up and down, which those were pretty cool, too. But my favorite were the 1994 jersey. Yeah, I know Edelman's been trying to get those back for a game. Like he put it on his Instagram a couple of times. So maybe it'll happen. I like those uniforms, too. I like them a lot better than the uniform. I think the uniforms they have now, quite frankly, stink i mean anything but those uniforms they look like i don't know they look like high school units especially the all blue drew those things are yeah those are terrible sometimes sometimes they overthink it right you know and 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 again i'm pretty old but man i kind of like some of these 
you know, old school uniforms. Um, I understand that, you know, especially in college when you're recruiting, you know, there's, you know, you got to have a new uniform every week and all of that stuff. But when in the NFL, I like, I, I kind of like the tradition of, of some of the old uni, old unis, um, you know, even the, uh, even those ugly ass uh, Tampa Bay, uh, you know, orange Julius looking uh, jerseys. I kind of like those because it was yeah. just different. It was old school. Yeah, the creamsicles. All right, so let's go to 1996. You guys make the run, of course, to the Super Bowl. You beat the Jaguars and the Steelers, both pretty bad on your way to make that run. We know about the defensive guys you guys had, but that offense, I mean, you had Curtis Martin, who was over 1,000 yards rushing. You're over 4,000 passing yards. And Terry Glenn, who tragically passed away a couple of years ago, he's over 1,000 receiving yards. And then you had Ben Coates, who I think may be one of the most underrated tight ends in NFL history. Like if anybody hasn't seen Ben Coates play, go on YouTube. Any of our young listeners, go on YouTube and watch Ben Coates. But what was that offense like? Man, it was fun. And then we had, uh, we had some dogs up front too. I mean, we were, uh, we, we had a, that was really a fun offense to be a, be a part of. And, you know, you talk about Curtis Martin, you know, I, I had the best seat in the house to watch him work. Um, you know, I, I often, I, I would often get in trouble for not carrying out my play fakes after I handed the ball off. Cause I wanted to see what Curtis was going to do next. Um, <laughs> and, um, and Ben coach, you know, yeah, you're, you're right. For young listeners go, go on YouTube and Google or, and check out Ben coach highlights. Um, dude, he was, uh, he truly was one of the, one of the all time great tight ends ever to play the game. And the fact that he doesn't get considered for the hall of fame is just a travesty. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it was a really fun offense. And then, and then Terry, uh, Terry Glenn, as you said, rest in peace. Um, you know, Terry was just absolutely explosive. He was also an incredibly smart receiver. He knew how to get himself open, where to be, when to be there. And I had a great feel for him, even just as a rookie. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty fun offense to be a part of. Yeah. You guys had an unbelievable season. Of course, it ends up in the Super Bowl. You guys play the Packers and, Thinking back to that time, Drew, it's interesting, right? Because you guys are getting ready to play Brett Favre and Reggie White and Desmond Howard, all that guys. It's a loaded football team. And there's all this drama going on around the team in terms of Bill Parcells, his future with the team and Robert Kraft. How much of a distraction was that for you guys? Because it was such a bizarre situation. Like this is the biggest game for the franchise really since what, 1985. You have a chance to win the Super Bowl. It feels like you guys are really on to something as a team. You mentioned the young, the youth on the roster, so to speak. So, what was that like when this drama is going on around the team? You know, it was it was honestly it was as much as anything. It was just frustrating, you know, because you know we made this very unexpected run to get to the Super Bowl. Nobody expected us to be there, um, and we make it there. And instead of the story being, you know, look at this sort of Cinderella team and. You know, isn't it cool that they that they made it all this way? Uh, instead, the story was all the drama as as to whether Parcells was going to leave, um, and that was um, that was just as much as anything. It was just disappointing uh, because it was a pretty cool story that we made it to that game, um, and then of course, you know, he did go and take off um, immediately after that, which was I don't know, I, I just unprecedented that a coach just chooses to leave and go to a rival after you made it to the Super Bowl. It just doesn't seem to make any uh doesn't seem to make any sense. Um so that that part was that part was disheartening. It was frustrating. And yeah, I've also you- we, we did uh we did um I did college game day a couple of years ago and I told Desmond Howard that I've still never forgiven him uh for uh, ruining that game. Um <laughs> I mean it wasn't my it wasn't my best game but we were but man we also we were 
we were back tied up with them and you know and then all of a sudden desmond just goes off it was oh man i was pissed at him yeah he really was unbelievable in that game but as so after that happens like after the super bowl loss did you guys feel like the locker room betrayed by parcells especially you mentioned the whole idea of him going to a rival yeah no i was uh yeah it was not uh guys weren't very happy um you know so that was that was frustrating because we felt like we were you know we were really building something that was pretty special um and then uh, and then pete came in and and yeah i gotta tell you you know you talk to any of the guys that played for pete carroll we all loved him um you know the biggest thing that happened when pete came in is we had a bunch of picks and we didn't hit on very many of those draft picks that we had when parcells left and then curtis left uh and then we had just injuries at the wrong time and um you know we just as we were set up to kind of continue on a run um you know we started getting old started getting hurt and uh we didn't have the young guys coming up so you know i felt like pete was uh thrown under the bus for a situation that wasn't entirely you know his creation or his fault um but uh yeah that uh, was it was that was that was still an interesting time and we you know and to be honest with you man looking back at it it was still fun brian i you know it's like even when it's hard you know you we you know i still was always able to have the perspective that you know whether things were going well or whether they were going poorly man i was in the freaking nfl and it was cool as shit i i just i uh <laughs> um, um we had a lot of fun through those times yeah and it was awesome i mean you guys still with pete i mean to your point that you guys maybe didn't draft well you still had good teams you made it to the playoffs two years in a row before bill comes in yeah. so let's flip forward to 2001 because we all know what happened that season mm -hmm. you had that really bad injury brady comes in but you go to that 01 afc title game Brady goes down with the injury. You come in right away. You lead the team down the field. You find David Patton for a touchdown. You guys end up winning that game over Pittsburgh. And Brady, it was actually in his one of the documentaries, the series he had there, where he admitted that he couldn't beat that Pittsburgh team. He wasn't ready for Blitzburg. Now, eventually, Brady would master that defense, right? That Dick Laveau defense. But at the time, he said he couldn't figure it out. So you come in, you win the game. You're on the field after celebrating after everything you have been through, especially like the severity of the injury you suffered, Drew, and Tom taking over, what was that moment like being on the field? You know, it was pretty emotional, honestly. You know, it was, um, that year was, um, you know, it was the very definition of bittersweet, you know, cause uh, I get hurt, um, team goes on a tear, um, winning games, all kinds of different ways. Um, and I'm, I have to, after I get healthy, I got to stand there and watch. Um, so, you know, super happy for my team, trying to do everything I can to support the team. But the fact that I'm standing on the sidelines was just brutal. Um, and so to be able to play in that game and, and, and for us to be able to win that game, um, you know, I just remember it knelt down with the ball in the very last play, uh, and just, I just cried and, uh, um, and the, the cool, the, the cool memory for me was that my dad had surprised me and showed up at that game. He, I, I didn't. I had no idea he was going to be there until uh, the Saturday night before. And he just calls me, hey, kid, I'm in town. You know, you want to come over and say hi? And so I went over and said hi to dad. But after that, standing up there, and I always kept the football after I knelt down with it after a game. So I'm standing up there. I've got the ball. And I look out, and somehow my dad had made his way onto the field. So I saw dad who played tight end and, uh, in, the, in college. And uh, I threw him the ball. Uh, he, he caught it, you know, nice news, watched it. And the whole way, tucked it away, uh, and he still has that ball sitting on his dresser uh, at at his house all these years later. Oh, that's awesome! That's unbelievable. And I just remember that was such a crazy game. And what it led to was after, like 
basically the first, I don't want to say the first big Boston sports debate, but it definitely was one of the biggest. Like, I mean, sports talk radio was crazy at that time. You were either a Bloodsoe guy or a Brady guy. I still can remember my dad when I was young telling me, hey, they got to go back to Bloodsoe. He won the game against Pittsburgh. They got to go back to Drew. And there was, of course, people on the other side. So I'm wondering for you and Tom, like, when did you guys, because obviously it was late, right, in that week. How did you and Tom find out who was starting against the Rams? Uh, we went up to um, to Bill's uh, hotel room um, individually and uh, um, and went in and uh, met with him. It just you know, as you would imagine, with with uh, with Belichick, you know, it was, it was there was not really a conversation. It was just like, hey, we're gonna go, we're gonna go with Tom. Like, okay, and that was the extent of the meeting. Um, obviously, wasn't very happy about it, but um, but. Um, um, you know, that was the decision they made at the time. And, and, uh, um, uh, and obviously, you know, Tom went on to be nothing after that. Um, he became, <laughs> an, he became an utter failure. So, um, you know, obviously they made a crazy decision. Um, I think, uh, I do, I do think though, if they, if they, if they stuck with me, we probably would have won nine or 10 championships and, and, uh, rather than just, uh, only six. <laughs> so, hey, what was that relationship with, with Tom? Because it feels like everybody, like all his teammates love Tom. So, like, for you, of course, you want to be out there. You want to be playing throughout that season when you come back from the injury. But it does seem like Tom's a really good guy. And at that point, he's very young. He's got a lot of energy and all that. Sure. What was it? What was the relationship <laughs> like? Because I, I get to admit, if it was me, I would, like, want to hate Tom. But was it tough to, like, yeah. was it tough no, to... You know, it was, it was never, um, it was never, um, it was never bad between us. Um, yeah. Yeah, Tom's a good dude. I'm a good dude. We're both super competitive and both want to be out there. Um, but it was never, it was never a thing where it was, you know, us versus each other. We were both just playing or playing as hard as we could and, and, um, you know, ready to rock and roll whoever's number got called. So, um, and that's the one thing I did, you know, I tell Tommy whenever I talk to him, I, mean, I was really proud of watching, watching what he accomplished uh, but I was always more proud of how he did it. He always just handled himself with such class and um, and um, was always a great teammate to everybody. And that's who he was when he was, you know, a rookie on practice squad. He was he was just a hardworking guy with a lot of energy. And and, uh, um, and he maintained that throughout, you know, a long and illustrious career uh, was always just a, a, a class guy and a team guy. So um, there was there was never a problem between the two of us. Uh, I didn't like the situation, but that had nothing to do with him. All right. So how sweet was that 31 to nothing win? Uh, that one was pretty fun. That one was pretty <laughs> fun. Um, when we were in, in Buffalo, you know, and the crazy thing, man, was that, you know, when I went to Buffalo and we played the Pats, you know, a lot of my really close buddies uh, from the Patriots were on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, you know, you got Brewski, Ted Johnson, Willie. Uh, Ty, lawyer, uh, you know, these were guys that, you know, we actually spent a lot of time together and they were good buddies. So I just remember it was really weird the first time, um, you know, took a snap and I look across the, uh, across the line of scrimmage. And I just remember Ted Johnson smiling at me, <laughs> like, you know, Hey, what's <laughs> up, buddy? Cause we, you know, we had, we had, we had faced off against each other. I don't know, thousands of times in practice. Uh, and so we're out there and I'm looking across like, man, that's Ted, that's Teddy, you know? There's Willie ready to try and kill me, um, you know, and and uh, so it was just kind of a surreal experience the first time that we played against them. And obviously they were still playing great football. Uh, but when we finally did, um, you know, knock them out, 
the first that uh, that first time in uh, in Buffalo, right after Lawyer uh, Malloy got traded over to us, um, you know that was a pretty sweet one. Unfortunately, they flipped the script on us at the end of the year, but but uh, we don't have to talk about that right now because I'm getting old. I don't remember the good times. <laughs> I hear you. And that we've had Ted on the pod a bunch. He's a great guy, so I'll pass yeah, yeah. that note along to him. So. When you were playing that game, who talked the most most crap? Was it Ty Law? Was it? I'm guessing it was. Was it Willie? Like who talked the most crap back to you in that game? You know, honestly, um, you know they they weren't they weren't big trash talkers. Um, you know, Ty Ty always liked to run his mouth, but because uh, that's just you know how he how he got himself fired up. But he was always talking to molds or peerless. He wasn't talking to me. Yeah, um, and uh, no, you know those guys did their their they. They did their talking with their play. You know, they didn't, they never felt like they had to, you know, yeah, run their mouths a lot. Um, I do remember, uh, I do remember Willie, and it's still a bone of contention with Willie because he, uh, you know, he played and watched me play and we played against each other in college. But there was one play early in that, I think that first game where, you know, he comes in and he wrapped me up. And then he says he looked at the ref to blow the whistle and the ref didn't blow the whistle. And so when he didn't blow the whistle, he went like full suplex on me and slammed me on like backwards and slammed me on my head. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I, you know, I remember I, you know, I, I kind of got up laughing, but I think they threw a flag on him for uh, dumping me on my head, even back then. Um, but he it always been really bad then. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was. Yeah. Right. It was, <laughs> and, uh, but you know, Willie goes, he, he's, when he talks about it, he's like, look, that's a sign of respect because I knew if they didn't build a whistle and I, or if I didn't put you on the ground, you were going to find a way to get the ball off and throw it to somebody. Um, and uh, so he goes, so it was a, you know, it was a sign of respect. I wasn't going to let you stand there and then throw the ball. Cause I've watched you do it, you know, a number of times before. All right. So I want to ask you about Mac, because I felt like last year for a guy like Bill Belichick, who's the most prepared guy of all time is we all know he went into last season and he had Matt Patricia, a guy that had no experience calling plays, not a lot of experience on the offensive side of the ball at mm -hmm. all. And Mac was in a really bad position. They were last in red zone offense last year. How surprised were you that this is a second year quarterback? And for a guy like you, you know how important it can be to have that relationship with the offensive coordinator. And we know how good Josh McDaniels was right for Mac Jones. How surprised you with that decision from Bill? Yeah, you know, that one didn't seem to make much sense to me. I mean, I know Matt Patricia is a brilliant guy, um, but, you know, play calling, it, it, there's there's an art to it. Um, you know, there's obviously you can study all you want and you and you get all the the plans and preparation. And I know that that they were going to do that, but there's also an art to it that requires a lot of practice. You know, the, I had eight different coordinators uh, in my in my 14 years. Um, you know, and there were a couple of them that were exceptional, uh, Sean Payton being one of those, I only had him for one year down in Dallas. Um, and there really is kind of an art to it. And there's a flow to play calling, uh, that changes and morphs during the course of a game. And I just, I don't know that that's something you can pick up in just one year, regardless of how smart you are. So that was a surprising decision. Um, I'll be very curious to watch and see how it works with Bill O'Brien this year. Um, you know, I think that that's going to be much better, um, for Mac. Um, but you know, we'll wait and see, but, uh, yeah, that was just kind of a surprising decision. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah. Do you, do you believe in Mac as a quarterback? I mean, obviously a good rookie season at down last year, but a lot of that you can attribute to what happened in terms of the play calling and just the offensive system in general. Do you think Mac has what it takes to be sort of a franchise quarterback? Yeah, I do. I do. He's, uh, uh, first of all, he's very well respected in the locker room and in the organization. 
uh, works his butt off. Um, he's not going to overpower anybody. He's, you know, he's not, he's not Pat Mahomes. Um, but he, uh, within the framework of an offense can be very, very efficient. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he can be, I think he can be a franchise quarterback, uh, but they've got to make sure that they have the right offense and the right pieces around him, uh, in order for that to, uh, to, to work. You know, he's never going to be Lamar Jackson and just go take over a game, uh, you know, with his legs or with his arm strength. Um, but uh, within the confines of playing the position of quarterback, he can be very, very good at that as long as they put the right pieces and the right um, uh, right plan around him. All right, Drew, before I let you go, it's been sort of a weird situation the past couple of years with Bill and Robert Kraft. So Bill referenced the team being 27th in cash spending over the past three years. Now, he did later say that it wasn't a shot at Kraft. Kraft responded at the owner's meeting saying that the there's never been limits. The money spending will never be an issue. I promise you that. He also said it's very important him to make the playoffs next season. And he said he wants Bill to break Shula's record. But he also mentioned that it's not about breaking records. He doesn't look for his players to have great stats. He, we're about winning. That's what Robert Kraft said at the owner's meetings. It seems like, Drew, there's a little bit of tension right now between Robert and Bill. And I remember Tom Brady's father saying like 20 years ago that it was going to end ugly between Bill and Tom. Do you think it's going to end ugly between Bill and Robert? You know, um, first of all, they're both extremely competitive uh, and have very high expectations and they haven't met those expectations the last few years. And so when that happens, nobody's happy. And, and uh, when nobody's happy, that's going to affect a relationship. Um, in terms of how it ends, man, I, I have no idea. Um, you know, I, it doesn't seem like Bill's looking to ride off into the sunset anytime soon. Um, but at the same time, you know, if they don't make the playoffs, uh, you know, I think that that uh, that Robert, knowing that knowing how competitive he is, uh, that's not okay. If they don't make the playoffs this year, this year, that's not okay. And so, um, it'll just be it'll be interesting to see it uh, see how it plays out. Um, my personal opinion is, I think they they can make the playoffs this year. Um, the biggest problem they've got is all of a sudden their division looks pretty tough, especially if Aaron Rodgers goes to the Jets. He might be the one quarterback that can break the curse of Jets quarterbacks uh, being the place where quarterbacks go to die. Uh, 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 but, uh, you know, I mean, the Bills are super strong. Dolphins are looking good. Uh, the Jets could be special, especially if they get Aaron. Uh, so all of a sudden their division is really, really tough, and that's going to make it hard. That's going to make it hard for them. All right, that is Drew Bledsoe, of course, Patriots Hall of Famer, four-time Pro Bowler, led the league in passing in 1994. Drew, really had a great time chatting with you, man. Thank you so much. You got it, Brian. Talk to you again soon, man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, great stuff there from Drew Blood. So that was a lot of fun chatting with Drew, going down memory lane. Man, that 0-1 AFC Championship game, Brady goes down, he comes in, they win that. But I like this stuff. My favorite part is the Parcel stuff because it really is crazy to think back during that time. 1996, like it looked like it was the start of things for the Patriots. They make it to the Super Bowl and Parcells is an all-in. He's got this issue with Kraft. I mean, it was just a crazy thing to think about. That a guy's getting ready to coach in the Super Bowl 
and you don't know if he's going to be there. It's like this whole thing going on within the organization. And Bledsoe said, like, how could it not be a distraction for the team? So it's just unfortunate that that happened. But, man, that was my favorite part of talking to Drew is just that whole thing with Parcells. It was crazy. All right, I did want to get to the Bees because, man, they take a commanding 3-1 series lead after they beat Florida 6-2 on the road. A crazy, crazy game, man. And this is now back-to-back games without your first-line center and your second-line center, and you win. Like, this type of shit would cripple most teams. But what we've seen all season long, this team rallies, right? I mean, McAvoy was out to begin the season. Marshawn was out to begin the season. Hall missed a good chunk of time this year. And they still set all these records. So this is not something that's going to be shocking to the Bruins. They're going to respond, and we certainly saw that in this game on Sunday. Now, you have a third-line center in Charlie Coyle that has an incredible Game 3, and he was really good in Game 4 again. Not many teams have a guy that can be basically your shutdown center. He's the shutdown guy on the third line. He's been more of a defensive center this year than he has been somebody that you're looking for scoring output because you have scoring output all over the place. But when you need him to be more aggressive, we've seen it over the past two games as well. And this is why this is the team that's favored to win the cup. They are so deep. Hall was incredible. Orlov was really good again. Bertuzzi was incredible. He had that unbelievable tip in. So we'll get into all this, but I'll say this first. I'm sort of worried about game five at the Garden. Not that I think that the Bruins are going to lose that game. I think they're going to win. But man, this Florida team, what we're learning is they're really dirty. This is a dirty team, and we saw it in the game on Sunday. That's why I'm worried. Like, is Florida going to hurt somebody? They almost did today, right? I mean, you just look at how the game ended. Kachuk is a dirty player. Like, seriously, like, fuck that guy. He is so dirty. I mean, let's start with the craziness at the end of the game. So Montour slashes DeBrusque, no penalty on that. And then Kachuk goes at Olmark and (laughs) all hell breaks loose. I mean, Olmark, I loved it. He threw off the blocker. He threw off the glove. He wants to fight Kachuk. So it it was crazy. The refs completely lost control of this game. So it takes like 10 minutes in real time to sort this whole mess out. But what a tough guy Kachuk is, right? I mean, he goes after the goalie. And remember, this is after what he did earlier in the game, after the first period. He took an incredibly dumb penalty. I mean, good for the Bruins. He took the penalty, but bad in terms of what happened. He cross-checks Hathaway like right in the back, right in the kidney area. Hathaway's down for a while on that play. Now, (laughs) luckily for the Bees, they score on the power play. Like, it's after the period and you take a penalty like that. I mean, just idiotic from my perspective, but just a mind-numbing penalty and a cheap shot. Oh, by the way, on that play, if you go back and look at the video, Bennett actually hits Hathaway like he's doing a cup check, like, hitting him in the nuts with his stick to like when this guy is literally hurt, like he wasn't moving. He's down on the ice because he just took a shot in the kidney, a cheap shot from Kachuk. And you have Bennett over here trying to do a cup check on the guy. Like this is why I'm worried about this team going into game five on Wednesday night is they're incredibly dirty. He also Kachuk did one at McAvoy in the third period as well. They both get slashing penalties. It, he's just dirty. And I, <laughs> I love Allmark wanting to fight him. I thought that was hilarious. But they've had enough of this cheap stuff, right? I mean, going at the goaltender, cross-checking a guy in from behind after the period. This is why it's just, that's the concern going forward. The concern is not whether or not the Bruins are going to win the series. The concern going forward is this team is going to try to injure somebody in game five. It, it, it's just a reality. They're going to try to injure somebody. They've been trying to do it all series long. Okay. So speaking of the Panthers being stupid, how about the first penalty they take? Colin White, a cross-check on Taylor Hall led to the first goal, where... Pasta has that great entry. Marshawn ends up with the goal where Bobrovsky doesn't know where the puck is. Remember, I mean, we've seen some weird plays in the series. But nonetheless, at that point, Florida has a ton of energy. And you knew they'd come out with a ton of energy because they're down 2-1. They're desperate. 
They had the first 10 shots of the game, and then they put the Bruins on the power play and the Bruins score there. I mean, all the momentum you had created, like you were taking it to the Bruins and you have a stupid penalty by Colin White. This is sort of like the thing that we've learned about this Florida team throughout the series. Now, maybe it's just because they're getting beat, but they're just making stupid play after stupid play after stupid play. You go back to game one. They took a dumb penalty. Smith took a dumb penalty to put the Bruins on the power play. So they're a dumb team. They make idiotic decisions and they're dirty. That's what concerns me about going into game five. Not the Florida Panthers, the hockey team. Like what type of cheap shots are they going to take on the Bruins? But anyway, let's get to Taylor Hall because I thought he was awesome. He had the two goals, two assists. I know one was an empty netter, but he's a plus three. And DeBrus, I referenced, he scored in that power play where it's an easy entry for Hall who just found Orloff, who found DeBrus to make it two to nothing. But it's all because of the entry of Hall on the power play. And Orlov is now up to five assists, by the way. Just a side note as we're talking about Hall. There are only guys that have more than five assists so far in the postseason are Mitch Marner and that Toronto team has scored like 800 goals against Tampa and Adam Fox of the Rangers. That's it. And then Dimitri Orlov, the defenseman for the Bruins. It's crazy, right? And this is just another side note is how perfectly he fits with Montgomery's system, right? In terms of a defenseman that wants to get involved in the rush. But then getting back to Hall, he was all over the place in the third period. He had that unreal feed to Zaka, and then DeBrus got the rebound to put that one back in. He had the breakaway that made it 4-2, to two, where I mean, jeez, Bobrovsky's got a family. He just completely undressed Bobrovsky on that play to make it 4-2, to two, just a filthy goal. And look, he took a different role this year, right? Playing on that shutdown line, he was great in the defensive end all season long for the Bees, but man... The speed is overwhelming, and it's him and DeBrusque are like the two guys that have a ton of speed, a ton of power, and you could see that, and you've seen it throughout this series for Taylor Hall, where at times this year, Taylor Hall has not been a guy that, you know, is lighting up the scoreboard like he did when he was winning the Hart Trophy, right? He's not having these unbelievable numbers on a night-to-night basis, but he had an impact on the defensive side of the ice this year, and if you look at him in this series, I mean, it's more of the offensive guy, right? Four games, he has seven points and four goals. And you knew there was going to be this moment in the playoffs where Hall was going to get his opportunity. And what we've seen, it's happening in the opening rounds here against Florida where you needed his speed. You needed his ability in rushes and all that different type of stuff. And we've seen it throughout these first couple of games. He's been downright outstanding. Another guy I want to get into is McAvoy because, my word, how about the hit that he had on Kachuk? On the Panthers' power play, remember, they almost had a shorthand goal to the Bruins. He comes back and he just absolutely lays out Kachuk. He finished with five hits today. So if you look at it now, he's had two games where he's had eight hits in the series. He had five today and another game where he had four hits. Connor Ryan, who we had in the pod last week, he had this note that eight hits ties his playoff career high. And he's already done that twice in the series. And like I said, he had the big highlight hit today. So during the season, his high in terms of hits, his season high was five. So he's now done that three times in four games in the postseason. And I mean, it's just crazy how he's dialed up the physicality. He's realized like that's the role they need him to bring. And that's leadership from my perspective, right? We know how important his offense can be at times, right? I mean, he's an incredibly skilled defenseman, but he has set the tone for the Bruins in terms of the physicality, just laying guys out. All right. So I know I need to mention Bertuzzi, this guy, man, the deflection on the Carlos shot. I mean, that was just stupid. What ridiculous hands Bertuzzi has. And how about this? He has a point in every game. He now has six points in four games. And this guy, coming back to Taylor Hall, the injury now for Taylor Hall, because clearly he looks fine. I mean, he was incredible today. I thought he was the best player for the Bruins. But all in all, that injury has turned out to be a blessing in disguise, right? I mean, who gives a shit about that first round pick? I'd love to have him back next year. It's just a matter of the salary cap situation. 
But even if he's not back, I mean, it's worth having him. He's had a major impact in a first-round series when you're down Bergeron and you're down Krejci, where he's played a major role. I mean, he had the whole thing with Cousins in Game 1 where he took a stick. He's like the perfect type of guy to fit into this organization. But the work he does in front of the net is impressive. The passing is ridiculous. I love that pasta Zaka Bertuzzi line. Just a ton of skill out there. So talk about Don Sweeney knowing exactly what he needed. I mean, this guy is a perfect fit on this team. All right, we got to get to Coyle again because game three was just like, I mean, holy shit, right? Like, how can you go from a third line shutdown guy to the impact he had offensively? So if you go back to game three, we mentioned it the other night briefly Friday, but if you look at the Bruins, they had 10 high danger chances on five on five. Coyle had six of them. This guy prior to the playoffs was the shutdown guy. Okay, he wasn't playing. He wasn't like having this big offensive season and you have 10 high danger chances. Six are Coyle in game three. And so then if you look at it in terms of the fact that I understand that like Bergeron and Krejci, they're 36 and 37 and all that. But to be able to just fit in and just bump up and play with Marshawn and play with DeBrusque and have that type of impact, it's just awfully impressive. And what impressed me the most in his game four performance was the faceoffs. The Bruins as a team, they won 63.5% of the faceoffs. They were 40. They won 40 in Florida, won 23. Coyle won 15 of his 19 faceoffs. A ridiculous 78.9%. That gives you such an advantage. And while we're on it, by the way, a bottom six center like Nosek, he won 14 of 18, 77.8%. It's just so massive. And Nosek's been great in the faceoff circle all series long. So I thought that was huge for Coyle in terms of game three, the impact he had offensively. In this game, more specifically, what he did in the faceoff circle. And I'd say the same thing about Nosek all series long. And that's what you want. Bottom six centermen win faceoffs. And that's what Nosek's been able to do. I did want to mention Lindholm because he doesn't have a point in this series. But man, he's been really good in the defense in the defensive zone. If you look at it, the five on five, he was on the ice for two goals, zero against. 11 shots for six against. And the Panthers had a 30 to 20 edge. I'm talking about five on five play, of course. The Panthers had a 30 to 20 edge in five on five shots. And... When he's on the ice, it's 11 to 6 Bruins. If you look at the Corsi rating, the block shots, the missed shots, and of course the shots on goal, it's 22-14 on 5 on 5 when the Bru- when the Bruins are on the ice with Lindholm. The Panthers had a 54 to 40 edge in the game. So when he's on the ice, 55% of the team's Corsi. Basically, 22 of the 54 happened when he's on the ice. So he was just tremendous in this game. And if you look at it too, six high danger chances when he's on the ice compared to two. And the Bees had... 10 in the game, he was on ice for six of them. So what, 60% of the high danger chances. Oh, just circling back to the Corsi. I meant he was on the ice for 22 of the 40. The Panthers had 50 in terms of the Corsi. So 22 of the 40. So like I said, 55%. I mean, the guy was, despite the fact that like we became accustomed to him putting up points all season long, like it was a career high and all that. But what he's done in this series, he's been really impactful on the defensive end, especially dealing with the Kachucks of the world, et cetera. All right, Hathaway, like, Talk about the physicality with McAvoy. How about Hathaway? A bottom six forward, right? So this season, you look at Hathaway and he comes back from that injury. The guy's incredibly tough. We know this. 268 hits this year. That was eighth in the league. You know how many he had in the game on Sunday? When the guy got hit in the kidney, he still managed to have eight hits in this game. Of course, led the team. So this is what you want from a bottom six forward in terms of your playoff run. You want somebody that's going to mix it up and hit guys. This guy gets absolutely clobbered by Kachuk cheaply from behind. He still leads the team in hits. So just an incredible performance from him to, after taking that hit, have the energy to do what you're supposed to do, which is just fly around and hit people. And that's exactly what Hathaway does. He brings the physicality just like McAvoy has done in this series. Now, I will say, you got to give credit to Don Sweeney because how many teams could survive this? You think about 
all these guys he's traded for over the past couple of years. Coyle, he's been a perfect fit. Lindholm, I mentioned how great he's been in the defensive end. Bertuzzi, they just got at the trading deadline this year. He's been great. Unbelievable goal today. Orloff, third in the NHL in terms of the postseason and assists. He's been great. Hathaway's been great. All these trades have worked out for the Bruins, and you have to give Don Sweeney a ton of credit for that. This is why this team set records, because he's hit on all these trades. It's remarkable what he's been able to do. I mean, the only really blemish on the resume this year is the Mitchell Miller situation, which, of course, Patrice Bergeron took care of that situation by coming out publicly and talking about it. But in terms of the guys they put around the core of this team, all these guys have fit in perfectly. It felt like a lot of these guys, they were just waiting to get to the Bruins because like Bertuzzi, there was no adjustment period. Orloff, there was no adjustment period. Hathaway, I mean, there wouldn't be an adjustment period for a guy like that anyway. Just go out there and hit some people, right? Like it's just been a perfect way to blend everybody together. And I look at it now, like game five, I know they said like Bergeron could play. I wouldn't play Bergeron. I wouldn't play Krejci either, quite frankly. And I know this is like going to be unpopular because Krejci's been such a good Bruin. I feel like Coyle's a better player for this series against the Florida Panthers. Krejci did not look like himself. We obviously know that he was banged up at at the end of the season, I would just keep both those guys on ice. Like, you're good without them right now. And not to say that you're not going to need them eventually, but right now, you're good without them, okay? You are good without them. All right, I did want to get to the Sox real quickly here because they won an absolutely crazy game against Milwaukee. They take two of three from a really good Milwaukee team, the first place team in the NL Central with Corbin Burns on the mound, the Cy Young winner from a season ago. And look, he just, he didn't look right. I know his last start, he was dealing with a pec injury. But you thought the Red Sox are going to lose this game when Caleb's Ort's on the mound, walks three guys, wild pitch scores a run, the Brewers take a 4-3 to three lead, and I just, I don't think this guy's particularly good, and when they get away from the six-man rotation, I hope that Ort or Brazier, one of the, like, they, these guys cannot be part of the equation going forward. You have so many good arms, I don't want to see any more Caleb Ort, but anyway, then you come back, and you have, in that eighth inning, Turner, solo home run off Bush, and man, this thing was down in the strike zone. He just completely launched it. I was thinking about this with Turner, too. Turner has such a pretty right-handed swing. Like, ordinarily, we think of pretty swings. We think of lefties like Ken Griffey as, like, the sexiest swing of all time, right? But righties, like Manny Ramirez has one of the sweetest swings of all time. I'm not saying, like, Turner's in the category of these guys in terms of his ability on the field. I'm just saying, like, his swing. Like, he has a really, really cool-looking swing. But anyway, he hits the home run. He's now 17 of his last 47, so 362. So he's been on fire. And entering today during that stretch, on-base percentage at 408, slugging at 500 with a 908 OPS. So that was big to get the home run from Turner to tie it up. But then who hit the home run? Yoshida. He launched one. 108.9 off the bat, 21-degree launch angle. Then he launched another one, a grand slam that put this thing completely out of reach. He hit two home runs in the same inning. This guy had one home run entering the day. He hit two in the same inning today. And you look at, like, the reason I referenced the launch angle, so the launch angle in the second one was 28, the first one was 21, because coming into the game on Sunday, this guy had a minus 1.7 degree launch angle, minus 1.7 degree, not even zero, right? That's the second worst in all of baseball. He's in the negative. And today he's actually hitting the ball in the air. And you look at the ground ball rate, 60.4%, third highest rate in Major League Baseball. He's topping the ball like crazy, 52.8%. So everything was on the ground. That's the second highest rate. And now you look at him, he's now seven of his last 17, 412. And maybe, look, there was an adjustment period, right? Like coming over from Japan. He had a really busy WBC and all that. But hopefully this is the start of something really good with Yoshida because you're going to need him, especially as we've alluded to in the past with what 
you're dealing with with Adam Duvall right now. All right. As for Brian Bayo, I thought it was a much better start. Obviously, he was horrible on Marathon Monday against the Angels. He was just really bad in that game. And then I felt like in this one, okay, let's see what he does. And the first inning, he gets Yelich to ground out. And then he got Winker to ground out. I'm like, okay, here we go. This is the ground ball machine like we've seen in the past. Like, this is what he's really good at. He, everything is down in the zone. You get a ton of ground balls. But then he walked Adamas and two of the changeups were not competitive. Then he walked Telez. He had a sinker in there that wasn't competitive. I'm like, okay, this, this could get ugly. Then he got Anderson. He struck him out on a nasty sinker. So you look at the inning, you're like two ground balls, a strikeout. That's great. But just 12 strikes in 26 pitches. So you're kind of worried about the command. And he came right back in the second inning, got another ground ball on Caratini, and then he got Terang to line out, and then Weimer singled on a cheap hit that, like, he barely touched. But then he got Perkins to ground out. So you come back and you get two ground balls in the next inning. Third inning, he gets another ground ball on Yelich. He got Winker to fly out weekly, and then he got Adamas to ground out. Now, in the fourth inning, missed his spot. The home run to Anderson. It's a slider that's in the middle of the zone. Shouldn't be in the middle of the zone, right? It should be on the outside portion of the zone. That's the only barrel he gave up on the day. He gets out of that inning. Then in the fifth inning, kind of lost it. Weimer gets to him again, doubled on an 0-2 slider. That was just not a good pitch, right? It's 0-2. It's bad execution. Like that pitch should not, a slider should not be inside when it's 0-2. That pitch should be going away and basically in the other batter's box, right? Like that's where you want that pitch to be. You're not trying to like almost like sneak one in there front door. You want that thing on the outside portion of the plate. So that was the mistake. And then Yelich, after a sack bun, singled on a changeup that was middle-middle, missed his location. So overall, I thought he was pretty good. Got burned a couple of times with missing his spots. But overall, the changeup really played. 13 swings, six whiffs on that pitch, which is his best pitch, 46.6%. That's a really good number. And the slider was a lot better. Like if you watch that game on Patriots Day, slider it wasn't a real pitch like he couldn't even use it like it was a non-competitive pitch so good start for Bayo. you're gonna see need to see more going forward but I thought his stuff played today more so than it did on Patriots Day because of the fact that he was actually throwing strikes after that first inning like that's been his big issue when he runs into trouble it's command so I thought he was much better so if you're looking for a positive thing going forward with Bayo, that outing was a pretty good one. Oh, I did want to do a metric man breakdown of Verdugo right because I just thought Look, Verdugo's been red hot. He got the cheap hit today after he was robbed like three times the other day. But or he, he also walked with the bases loaded, which I thought this is the maturity with Verdugo. He took a 3-1 changeup that was down in the zone. That's a good swing decision. Even though that's a strike, if you try to hit that, you're just going to ground out. So that's a really good swing decision. And I tweeted out early in the game that he tagged up in that first inning. And it wasn't that deep. And he was able to score. And I tweeted out, like, there's no way that he scores last year. He's just way more athletic. He's faster this year. And Ann Cundell from SoxProspects.com tweeted at me. He's like, okay, yeah, the sprint speed, 60th, 60th percentile this year. He was in the 38th percentile last year in sprint speed. Like, he's clearly in better shape. He looks more athletic. I know part of it is the injury as well. But if you look at it entering Sunday, 326, 389, 500, 889 OPS. So he was at 280 in terms of the average last season. So that's up 46 points. He was at 328 in terms of the on-base percentage. That's up 61 points. He was at 405 last year in terms of the slugs, so that's up 95. And he was at 732 in terms of the OPS, so that's up 157 points. So first things first, the Sox have figured out the problem that they've had since the Mookie trade, which ironically it's with Verdugo, is they haven't had a leadoff hitter, right, that's been consistent. It almost sort of reminds me of like, now not to this extent, but the Marcus Smart situation with the Celtics where 
How many times did we see them try to find a point guard, whether it be Schroeder, whether it be Kemba Walker, Kyrie Irving, like they were trying to find a point guard. It's like, hey, Smart was the best fit the whole time. He was right in front of you, right? It kind of feels like Verdugo should have just been the leadoff hitter the past couple of years. Now, he was not a good hitter last year. Like, He's a good hitter, but he wasn't a great hitter last year. Like He's been a great hitter this year, but it kind of reminds me of that in a weird way. And you look at it like Kike had a nice stretch in 2021, but he's been up and down. Schwarber hit leadoff a couple of times when he was here. Ref Snyder's done it. Like, you just have not had, they even tried Renfro at one point. Like, they just have not had a steady leadoff guy. And if you look at it because of that, 2020 to 2022, Red Sox leadoff hitters hit 243. That was 23rd. 312 on base percentage, 25th. 397 in terms of the slug, 18th. And a 709 OPS, 18th. So bad across the board. And the big thing, too, is they strike out a ton. From 2020 to 2022, Red Sox leadoff hitters, 22.4% 22.4% strikeout rate, 25th in Major League Baseball. Verdugo doesn't strike out just 10.5% of the time. 11th best in all of baseball. So you want your leadoff guy that doesn't strike out. They've had that issue throughout the past three years or so. And with Verdugo in there, he doesn't strike out. The other thing is you look at his swing strike rate, which is just the percentage of swinging strikes total. It's at 4.5%, fourth best in baseball. You look at the whiff rate. So the whiff rate just measures when you swing, how often you're missing. 12.6%, which is sixth in baseball. And how about this? He has six in-zone swing and misses the whole year. So in-zone pitches that he swung at, he's missed on just six of them. That's tied for the ninth best rate in Major League Baseball. Mike Trout, who's, I'm not saying, I'm not putting Verdugo in Mike Trout's category, but he's at 32. Now there's more swing and miss with Trout, but think about that. Six in-zone swing and misses the whole season. I mean, it's unbelievable. He's always been an elite bat-to-ball guy, but we're now appreciating those skills more because the rest of the numbers are really good. Like, we always knew he could put his bat on anything, but we're appreciating it because he's doing this consistently in terms of the hitting. So one of the big things is, I think because he's such a great bat-to-ball guy, that he could get his hands on anything, get his bat on anything, but the problem was, it's the swing decisions. They weren't good swing decisions, so that's when you're getting a lot of weak ground balls. So... If you look at the quality of the contact, it's much better this year. And part of that is, if you look at the launch angle, he's finally over 10 degrees, 10.8. Anything under 10, that's a ground ball. And if you look at Verdugo last year, he was at 8.4 degrees in terms of the launch angle. So we're talking about a 2.4 degree difference, right? And you look at the ground ball rate because of that. This year, he's at 39.4%, which is 104th, which, I mean, it's not unbelievable, but it's a lot better than where he was because last year, he's at 46.2%, which was the 40th highest rate. So you've dropped 64 spots, okay, and 6.8 percentage points, which is absolutely massive. I mean, that's a huge number that he's not hitting the ball on the ground like he used to. So that's why I've referenced the swing decisions, right? It's not so much like, oh, he doesn't strike out. I get that. And that's the same thing with last year. But it's the fact that, okay, like the 3-1 changeup I referenced, that's down in the zone. You're doing nothing with that, okay? And you still have another strike to play with. So don't swing at that pitch. And that's a pitch last year that Verdugo would have swung at. So he's been much better in terms of the decisions he makes at the plate. And that's why his expected batting average, like he's even had some bad luck. It's at 348, the expected batting average. It's the fourth best in Major League Baseball. That's how good the quality of the contact is and how good the bat-to-ball skills have been. The other big thing is we always knew that he could hit fastballs, right? He's actually been, over the past few years, one of the best hitters in all of Major League Baseball when dealing with high velocity. But he couldn't hit breaking balls, right? So if you look at 2021, he hit 263 off breaking balls. In 2022, that number was down to 206. This year, entering Sunday, that number was up 342. 
342. So he's up 136 points. Again, this is me telling you it's about the decisions he's making at the plate, right? He's not going to swing at a slider that's way out in the outside portion of the plate now. He's going to live for the next pitch, right? So he's making better decisions. He also last year didn't off-speed pitches. This again comes back to the ground balls. Like he was getting these change-ups and he was just hitting them into the ground because they were fading down to the lower portion of the strike zone. You don't need to swing at that pitch when it's 3-1. Or when it's 2-1, live for another pitch, right? So if you look at those numbers, 2021, in terms of off-speed pitches, 206. 2022, 202. This year, off-speed pitches, 444. So he's up 242 points. You know why? Because he's only swinging at bad ones. He's not going to be swinging at change-ups that are going out of the zone just so he can get a weak ground ball. So I just think there's been a level of maturity with him at the plate. And Quite frankly, a level of maturity with him as a player in general. I mean, last year we mentioned it physically, not in good shape. He wasn't. And I know he's dealing with a foot injury and all that different type of stuff, but he's in way better shape. I mean, you look at the guy, you watch him run. He's in way better shape. The defense would tell you that two outs above average. That's baseball savants metric. Only one outfielder's at three this year. He's at two outs above average. Okay. It's actually the dude that robbed him on Saturday twice. Weimer, who's a really good player, by the way. Last year, he's at minus four outs above average. That was tied for 102nd out of 125 qualified outfielders. This year, he's at two outs above average. So we're talking about a difference of six from where he was last year. So I also do wonder this with Verdugo, like two more years of arbitration. He's in his 27-year-old season. Him and Rafi are the real only position players right now that are prime age, right? Like you got the young guys, Casas, who continues to struggle. But some of the other younger players you have coming up in the system, right? The Myers of the world, et cetera. And then you have like the Wongs of the world, but then you have like the older guys, right? The Turners, Duvall's obviously not playing right now, but you have a lot of older guys on this team as well. The only guys that are like really in prime age, even Story, right? Story is going to be in his, what, 30-year-old season. The only guys that you really have that are in their prime are Verdugo and Devers. And the reason I bring that up, I wonder if they go to a guy like Verdugo and try to get a deal done at some point, because I, I, I quite frankly don't know what the value is going to be in him because he is a very unique player considering the fact that he was bad defensively last year and he's having his breakout season right now. So it's sort of tough to evaluate all this, but Verdugo's a guy that obviously is playing to get a contract eventually. And I think he's done a really good job bouncing back this year. I give him a ton of credit. One more thing on the Sox uh, sale. He's back on the mound in Baltimore Monday and he's going to get some eyes on him because there's no Celts and no no B's. Celts play on Tuesday, B's on Wednesday. Last time out, really good. 11 strikeouts. Now, I will say this. The Twins going into that one, 29th in Major League Baseball in strikeout rate at 26.9%. So they strike out a ton, but 11 strikeouts. That's 11 strikeouts. The encouraging thing in his last outing was the four-seamer. He threw 41 of them, so 43.6% of his pitches, and he sat at 94.3. That's a good number. And he threw just two two-seamers. The reason I bring this up, if you look at the outing that he got hammered against the Rays, he threw 22 four-seamers, so that was 27.2%, and he sat at 93. So the percentage was at 43.6% his last start, and the velocity at 94.3 compared to that 93. And he also threw 17 two-seamers, so 15 more than his last outing because he didn't have the confidence in that four-seamer. So this is what I'm going to be paying attention to on Monday when sales back on the mound, because... His fastball prior to his last start, like by the numbers, was pretty much the worst pitch in Major League Baseball. And that's not even slightly hyperbolic. It legitimately was. And if you look at that Rays start, nine swings, two whiffs on the four-seamer. That's 22.2%. So just three more called strikes. So 23% of his pitches were called strikes or whiffs. That's a really bad number for Chris Sale's fastball. Last time out, that start last week, nine whiffs on 19 pitches. That's 47.4%, a really good number. 
So a 25.2 percentage point jump. And then he got eight more called strikes. So that's 17. So that's 41.5%. So an 18.5 percentage point jump in terms of the called strike plus whiff rate. So the fastball was the big thing this last start. So we've talked about the changeup a lot. And often, like, we've kind of missed the part about the fastball. Like, the velocity on the fastball has been down. Hopefully, he can stay north of 94. Because if he can stay north of 94, then you have yourself a really good pitcher. But the problem is, let's see it again, right? Like, great start against the Twins. Now you got to start to put these back together. Because right now, it was a tease. Do it again, and then you're starting to believe in it, right? And Look, he should be motivated for this game. Not that he's ever not motivated. He had the scowl going last time. But remember, he was clobbered by the Orioles. Gave up two runs in the two home runs, I should say. Three runs in total in that first inning. So hopefully he can get back on track or not get back on track. Continue what he did in his last start. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. We'll be back with you on Tuesday after the Celtics wrap up their series, hopefully, against the Atlanta Hawks. So we'll pod on Tuesday night. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys in a couple of days.